Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. Hey, Jay. What, what, what? Hey, sorry. I, I know you got the intro going here. I bought merch today at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I got myself a snazzy Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came t-shirt. All things serve the beam. Nice. And then I got myself my, a sticker because I got to put something on the back of my laptop. So, boom. Got to represent. Exactly. So, I'm looking forward to getting my merch. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for doing that. While your dollars don't directly support the show. It's true. Your representation does. So as I was saying, in this episode, we'll cover The Shining, Part 3, Chapters 19 through 25. Let's start the show. Things kick off with Danny drawn to room 217, despite Halloran's warning. Jack calls Mr. Omen to share some thoughts about the Overlook. All three main characters worry about the hotel as they go to sleep. And Wendy talks with Danny about whether they should leave the hotel before the snow comes. When Jack goes outside to trim the topiary, he has a strange experience. The big blizzard finally comes, and the torrences are snowbound in the overlook. And Danny enters room 217 by himself. Jay, this is sort of silly, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I love the work that King did with the chapter names in this section. Yeah. Can I give you some examples? Yeah, lay them on me. All right. Chapter 19 is titled Outside 217, and what happens in in this section is that Danny is outside 217. Chapter 20, talking to Mr. Ullman. Jack talks to Mr. Ullman. In chapter 21, it's night thoughts, and what happens is during the night, Jack, Wendy, and Dan all think of things. So they have thoughts at night, is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, it is what I'm saying. In, in chapter 22, in the truck, Wendy and Danny have a discussion. Do you want to take a guess where that takes place, that discussion? In the truck. You're, you're catching on. Well, how about this one? This is a little. This is a little different. So chapter 23 is in the playground. And where does Jack have this sort of freaky incident? In the playground? Yep. Chapter 24 is just titled Snow. And it's a very short chapter in it. It snows. And then finally, as I alluded to in the intro, chapter 25 is called Inside 217. And that is the chapter in which Danny goes Inside 217. Wow, hot damn. That's some king foreshadowing there. Yeah, this title is exactly what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could just skim these headers. Turns out you could just read the cha- the chapter titles and know what you're doing. It, it's almost like King wrote an outline. Like, all right, here's what I'm going to cover in each one of these chapters. And I'll just put these placeholder chapter titles in. And he never changed them out to something more dramatic, right? Like, instead of in the playground, it's like topiary lion attacks. News at 11. <laughs> <laughs> There is a little bit of that paint by numbers to, to this whole book so mm. far. We've talked about how King seems to have wanted to write a gothic horror story. So he's following the guidelines. And 
all the way down to his outline where he just said, all right, there's a chapter that's called Talking to Mr. Ullman, where Jack talks to Mr. Ullman. Like, okay, done. What, what, how far do I need to go with this? It was very easy for me to write my notes, though, because I was able to like quickly remind myself, all right, here's what's in this chapter. Let's go. Besides the obvious titles, what do you think are some of the big themes that we're tackling in this section of the book? I remember last time we were a little like, eh, it's a little slow going here and not much is happening, but things start to escalate here. I think a big thing that's starting to develop here is the theme of Jack's self-sabotage. He, as a character, is doing things in the book that are making it harder for him to be a sympathetic character or to completely impossible in some ways to be sympathetic. And that's really undermining my impression of him. And I think yours as well. Yes. It's starting to make me wonder, like, of all the different versions of Jack, like, which is the real Jack? There's the Jack who maybe hopes to get fired as a desperate path to saving himself and his family. This is the Jack who maybe recognizes that something deep down is wrong, whether it's with himself or the hotel or the combination of the two. Right now, before the snow really starts, they can all get in the car and leave and hope for something better. But once that snow starts, then they are committed for the season. And good, bad, or otherwise, the choice is taken from them, or will be very soon. Yep. So maybe he's just, for good reasons, but unconscious ones, sabotaging his job so that he has to leave. Right. Maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, I think that that's sort of where he falls on what he's trying to do, because he's trying to figure out, like, why did I make this call to Ullman and really sort of lay on the line, like, all these thoughts I have? And the first one is is the, what potentially could be another version of Jack, right? Is that Jack's just uh, an asshole who's perhaps got a little bit too much pride, and he wants to show, like, hey, you could talk down to me, but I know what's going on, and I'm just going to poke you in the eye with my finger because, hey, your hotel's not as great as you think it is. You thought you were the guy in charge, and really, you don't know anything, and you're not very smart. And that's how his call to Ullman goes across. And it really is that self-sabotaging thing that you said, because there's absolutely no reason for him to call Ullman, who's at work. He's at his mm -hmm. other job, and he's calling him and saying, hey, this is a shitty job. You were condescending to me. I didn't like it. And here's what I know about you and this hotel. And, and there's absolutely no reason for him to do it other than being a jerk. And then to end that call with Ullman by saying, you can't get rid of me because, you know, my buddy Al will protect me. Mm -hmm. And Almond's like, are you sure about that? And then he has to have a call with Al, and Al really puts Jack in his place. Like, their friendship is sort of like, we're not really friends. I'm the one in charge here, and I have power over you. And you might think that this is a type of friendship. And from Al's point of view, he probably thinks they are still friends. It's just him being tough love. Yeah, yeah. But Jack reads it much differently. Yeah, it's amazing how much work Jack puts into being a giant asshole in, the, in those moments. <laughs> yeah. When he calls Ullman, he has to put in many dollars worth of change into a payphone and ask for, you know, the long distance calls to be connected and then get various people to call other various people and then finally summon Ullman to the phone only to tell him a bunch of stuff that makes Ullman angry. Yeah. It wasn't that Ullman called to check in and, or something. 
and it happened to come up in conversation, he went out of his way to be an asshole. Yep. And then when Al called him, he figured, well, here comes my my protection, calling to just reassure me that, yeah, between you and me, Ullman's a jerk. Right. right. Nope. He got he got a little bit of reality served up and Jack didn't like it. Nope. So we've got these potential two versions of Jack, right? The Jack who is maybe trying to protect his family, but is too prideful to just quit. So he's hoping to get himself fired so that mm-hmm. at least he can save a little bit of face on his way out. Or there's the Jack who's, hey, I'm just an asshole who thinks I know better and I'm just going to tell you what I know. But there's this third potential option too that maybe all of these are aspects of Jack, but they're being highlighted or or made more apparent by something that's going on with the hotel. Yeah. This is something that we've explored in some tangential ways in previous episodes and maybe been hinted at earlier in the book that maybe the hotel is warping Jack from good to bad. Or maybe another way of looking at it, it's like peeling away the facade to reveal the true Jack that's underneath. And that true Jack might be a giant asshole. Or maybe he's just a monster of sorts, the type of person who would treat his family very badly, break the bones in his son's arm, that kind of thing. Who knows how much worse? But it's just the Jack facade of the, I'm an okay guy. Most people like me. And I'm a brilliant writer. And I have so much to offer the world. If only people would stop being jerks to me, I wouldn't have to be such a jerk to everybody else. Yeah, well, we're starting to see what's underneath the the facade. And the sad part about it is that it is not only with people in authority or people he's tangentially related to, like Ullman and, and Al, but also with what we had thought was becoming a fairly healthy relationship that was continuing between him and Wendy. Hmm. In In the previous section, there was this whole thing about how oh, maybe this is like a second honeymoon and the family's going to get close together here and we're all looking out at the vista together. And instead, all that seems to just quickly go away with Jack. Just the anger that he has towards his wife here, yeah. where he, he says, not much, he said, having strived to keep his voice pleasant now. And then to himself, she was prying just the way she had always pried and poked at him on and on. She had pardon the expression, driven him to drink. Yeah. And just that anger at his wife. Yeah. When I read that line, I immediately thought, I take back everything I said about a healthy relationship. This man does not care for his wife. I think he hates her. Yep. I think he also might hate his son. At the beginning of this book, Jack Torrance seemed to love his wife and adore his son, but he had a drinking problem. And a little bit of a problem with anger management. Yep. Now, I think this is a guy who hates his family. And I don't like him at all anymore. No. And then the question is, is it because of the hotel or is it inherent in him or something else? Which is what we've been talking about this whole time, right? Mm -hmm. And then just to go back to this whole idea that Jack is self-sabotaging. Jack does have a little bit of self-reflection. And he says during his drinking phase, Wendy had accused him of desiring his own destruction but not possessing the necessary moral fiber to support a full-blown death wish. So he manufactured ways in which other people could do it, lopping a piece at a time off himself and their family. Could it be true? Was he afraid somewhere inside 
that the Overlook might be just what he needed to finish his play and generally collect up his shit and get it together? Was he blowing the whistle on himself? Please, God, no. Don't let it be that way. Please. What's interesting is that Jack is just not decisive. So he won't take the action necessary. And then when the snow comes, it's all the choices taken away from him because now they're effectively trapped and there's nowhere for him to go. And so whatever he hoped for, either getting fired and having to leave or making a decision and just leaving, it's gone. Mm -hmm. What's interesting here, though, is that it adds another layer or even another possibility for Jack's sabotage or the reason for it. What I kind of said earlier was he's looking for an out to protect his family because there's something gnawing at him that if they don't leave before it's too late, before the snow comes, then they could be in for a really bad winter together. And he's not sure why. There's, there's, there's something that mm. he can't quite put his finger on yet, but he has this foreboding sense. Here, the thing that you just quoted is really just a description of a creative person who is stymied in his creative outlets. And rather than acknowledging that maybe he's not as talented of a writer as he might as he thinks he is, or he's just not able to get past the block that he has mm. and focus on something else, or maybe just ex accept the fact that he can't be a writer for a living and he needs to find a new way to earn money to support himself and his family. He's just looking for new reasons to blame things or new things to blame for those failures. Well, I, it's not my fault I couldn't finish the play. It was because I got fired from the Overlook job and that was going to be where I was going to have the time to write it. Yep. I couldn't focus on the play when I was teaching. So that, that was the problem then. And I couldn't do this and then I couldn't do this. And it was all somebody else's or something else's fault. It's never him. Yep. And that's something that I think Anybody who endeavors on a creative task, any kind of art, can definitely relate to this. It doesn't have to be writing. No. It can be anything. It's hard work to, to do something creative, and it's sometimes it feels like you never make progress. A lot of times it's people with, because I thought this way for a long time, right? Like, if only I had the tools, right? Like, I just need the right notebook. Mm. If I had the right notebook, or no, Word's just not good for what I'm doing. If only I had that piece of software that would let me write better and like organize it. It's like always something else. And really, what do you need to write? A pen and a piece of paper. Yeah. That's what you need. But like, there's always something else. No, I need the right notebook. No, I need the right pen. No, I need the right computer. No, no, no. It's like that for just about any art, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, our podcast would be so much better if only we had a soundproof room and only if we had the high-end mic and only if we had the high-end microphones and only we had a cool editing tool and two turntables and a microphone and all that. And then we'd have this perfect, all right, maybe that's a little too far, but you get, you get my drift. <laughs> when really all you need is our thoughts and our dulcet tones to make a good podcast. That's right. I think what uh, speaks a little bit more to the point that I was just making about Jack blaming anyone and, and anything around him is that he just keeps making enemies even with inanimate hedge animals. Because <laughs> there's a line, he says, but if it was my hotel, I'd cut the whole damn bunch of you down. He would too. Just cut them down and resod the lawn where they'd been. So he's thinking this as he's walking towards the hedge animals, the ones who seem to come to life and try to attack him. Just before that happens, he's saying, I hate you. 
I would cut you down <laughs> and I would replace you with just a few more square feet of grass. Well, maybe that's why they attacked him. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it seems like Jack is just determined to make everybody stand against him so that he has an excuse to blame everybody else for every one of his shortcomings, all the things he doesn't like about himself and his lack of success. Yep. So not from the enemy standpoint, but there are a lot of ways in which Danny is a lot like his father. I think they come out in this section. And I'm specifically thinking about the self-sabotage aspect of Jack and how Danny seems to exhibit some of that as well. Specifically in that he has made a promise to Halloran that he would not go to room 217. Mm -hmm. And yet he finds himself in front of that room. And then when he puts his hand in his pocket, he just happens to find the pass key that is usually by the front desk. And while he's able to hold off for the moment, by the end of this section, he's not and, and it ends up in the well, room. Well, he was in the wrong chapter. That was the chapter and he was outside 217. Yes. It wasn't until he was in the chapter inside, inside 217. 217. Yes. That's, yeah. If only King had written stay away from room 217, it would have been all fine. So is King trying to do something here? Because that's not the only way in which Danny is reflected in his father. It's not only the self-sabotage, but even in some of the other incidents that happen in this section. And I'm specifically thinking about the fact that Danny has a similar incident to Jack's topiary garden. So Jack sort of imagines or has these topiaries move on him when, when he's not looking, right? And he's starting to get freaked out because he's afraid he's going to get eaten by a topiary lion. And it mirrors the incident in which Danny's in the hallway outside of room 217 and the fire hose has fallen off the wall. And he imagines that it's a snake and is going to start chasing him down the hallway. And that calls mm -hmm. back the impetus for King even writing this book, right? Like that was the daydream that kicked off King writing The Shining. And Danny, unlike Jack, is able to talk himself down from that and say, no, this is just my imagination. The host can't move. I can just get away from it. And Jack, meanwhile, is like, oh, no, shit, I am going to get eaten by this topiary garden. That rabbit's going to get me. And if it's not the rabbit, it's the tiger. And so I'm wondering if King's, I'm sure King's doing this intentionally, but what, what's he trying to get at here? Well, I'm sure he's trying to draw some parallels between father and son. But the main difference, though, or I should say the thing that sets them apart is that Danny apparently has the shine and his father doesn't. We, it doesn't seem like he does. Yet they're both experiencing these things, which means that they are real enough that they don't require one to have a, a superpower hmm. for them to happen. There's another thing in, in common where Danny going to room 217, when he knows it's like the worst place he should go, he's specifically told to steer clear of that one room, is self-sabotage, just like Jack, yep. right? He's making his experience at the Overlook potentially far worse than it needs to be. That hose is a scary-ass thing. Like, I, I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. But don't go into the room, too. Right. <laughs> just just don't go in the room. Yet, here we are with him in that chapter going into that room. I also thought it was interesting in this section about Danny and his powers. So in the chapter in the truck, when Wendy and Danny have a conversation in the truck, Wendy is starting to ask questions about things that Danny may or may not know. 
and that Wendy realizes he knows the answer to for some reason outside of what he should know. So obviously using the shine. And I, I wonder how aware Danny is of his own powers and how aware Wendy is of it. But he's like, she's specifically asking him questions about his father and questions about the hotel. Danny sort of goes into a trance and answers very truthfully, like, dad was thinking about this, and dad talked to to his friend Al, and they talked about this, and obviously he can't know these things, but Wendy trusts him enough to say, okay, yep, yep, what should we do? And when Danny says, I don't want to go to your mom's house, basically, I don't want to go to grandma's house, Mm -hmm. their fate has been cast, right? Because now, also like Jack, in not making a decision to leave, the decision's made for them, because now the snow has come, and now they're stuck at the overlook. Yeah, it's nice that for King to put in enough detail here to give them no other option, because if if Wendy had a wonderful relationship with her mother and knew that she lived in a big house and had room to take them in for a couple of months, it would just be so simple to say, let's bail on this whole Overlook job. Screw it. We'll find another thing. Let's all go to my mother's and stay there until we get on our feet. Here, rather than just glossing over that and just putting them in the Overlook, and sealing them in with snow, we actually give them opportunities to think about and consider the the various pros and cons and why they might choose to stay there. Yep. And they do so. Even with Danny's abilities to have a better sense of what's going on and some of the risks and some of the very scary things that he's experiencing. And it also gives Wendy an opportunity to find things out that she's not going to find out any other way. Mm. Because up until this point, she thinks she's having a okay time with Jack. Yeah. And meanwhile, like we could see how resentful Jack is in his thoughts. And Danny can also give her ideas of like, oh, daddy's making some weird decisions and making calls he probably shouldn't be that aren't turning out the way he wants. So also setting groundwork, I think, for what's coming up next. Yeah. I hinted at this a, a little earlier, but King is really amping up the gothic in this section of the book. Mm. It's pretty clear that he wanted to write a gothic novel and he's been sprinkling in all sorts of things to keep this book in line with that goal, like title chapters (laughs) (laughs) right on the nose. But some of these things are are far more subtle, like the author reference to Horace Walpole and some less subtle, like the Bluebeard story and ones that are dead on, like the Topiary Garden coming to life. Like These things are here because they make it more so a gothic novel yeah. by referencing other gothic novels or other gothic authors and things like that. King's doing the work to make this the paint by numbers. Yes, this is gothic in style and, and genre, I guess. But I'm also like being a little meta about it and mentioning other gothic things so that I just want to drive that point home. Yeah. Like Shirley Jackson doesn't mention Horace Walpole in in The Haunting of Hill House, but King's doing that here. He's like saying, yeah, all these things influenced me and I love them. So I'm going to talk about them a little bit, even if it's just a passing reference. Yep. I'm part of a larger tradition. Mm -hmm. For those of you who know the tradition, you'll catch the Horace Walpole reference. And for those of you who, who might not know who Horace Walpole is, maybe I'll just spell out the entire Bluebeard story and give it to you from the beginning to end. So you get, oh God, this is a really creepy dark story and what there's heads in the closet oh crap this is scary Mm -hmm. all right so maybe if i'm not as familiar with the gothic stuff i'm getting a sense of whoa this is creepy but i'm gonna bring my own spin to it king says and i'll have a topiary garden come to life yeah so 
for all levels of engagement here. Mm-hmm. That's something that George R. R. Martin, an author who I used to really anticipate reading his work, he used to like he would tell a tell a thing three times. First, mm. it was like the very subtle way, and if you caught it the first time, great, you're you're really paying close attention. And he would tell it a second time that was a little bit more straightforward, and then he would tell it a third time so that nobody would go through the book and totally miss it. Yep, but it was still fun for people paying any level of attention and you could still enjoy the book because it wouldn't just, things just wouldn't go over your head, but he was deliberate about that. So King's doing a little bit of that. All right, Jay, how about some dark tower thinnies? I, I will preface this by saying I didn't find any, so I'm hoping that you can draw something out here. I've got something that's, uh, I'll let you be the judge. All right. I found another quote unquote rose thinny. Mm. And this was when Danny was in the chapter inside room 217 uh, when he was inside room 217. Got it. Okay. That, that helps me place this. Yeah. Just so you're clear which chapter it was. Yep. The inside of room 217 has a rug and the rug is described as deep and soft. A quiet rose color. Soothing. So it's a rose color? So is this a thinny? I'm not seeing it. I don't think this is a thinny. Just because it says rose does not mean it's a thinny. Thinny denied. I'm giving you the the buzzer on this. Not a thinny. All right. Well, then I guess there are no thinnies that we've discovered in this. Listeners, if you have discovered any thinnies in this section of The Shining, let us know. I'm sure there's some yucking it up moments. Yeah, yeah, I I found one. So I'll start because I think I have the classic one. And this is, again, from the chapter titled Inside Room 17. When Danny is inside Room 17, he sees the woman in the tub had been dead for a long time. She was bloated and purple, her gas-filled belly rising out of the cold, ice-rimmed water like some fleshy island. Her eyes were fixed on Danny's, glassy and huge like marbles. She was grinning, her purple lips pulled back in a grimace, her breasts lolled, her pubic hair floated, her hands were frozen on the knurled porcelain sides of the tub like crab claws. Yuck. I'm sure that you cannot top that yucking it up moment, Jay. Oh, oh, you think, huh? What else was there? Does yours happen inside room 217? Mine does not happen inside room 217, where there was rose-colored carpet that was soothing to look upon. (laughs) If, If you think your yucking it up was yucky, let me just tell you what mine is. I was utterly disgusted by Jack putting Excedrin tablets on the phone booth shelf and then eating them. The line is, he shook out three of the white tablets and lined them up on the counter beside his remaining change. He put them on a public phone booth counter and then into his mouth. Ugh! I think I'd rather be in room 217. (laughs) Remind me, was that in the chapter in the phone booth? I think it was in the drugstore, talking on the phone. Yeah, I'm sort of not okay with just chewing pills like that's disgusting enough that's pretty terrible once you put them on a phone booth counter yeah that's not good 
All right, patrons. Well, what did you think? We know we've got lots of patrons out there who support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Dave have visited patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. And you also can go to patreon.com slash two guys dark tower and become a patron and let us know your thoughts on what you think is yucking it up and what you think is fun stuff. And if you have any dark tower thinnies, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, two of the most recent to join the throngs of patrons who support our show are Valerie T, who joined at the apprentice level, and Todd J.W., who also joined at the apprentice level. So Valerie and Todd, thank you both very much. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for supporting the show. Sean, is it time for fun stuff? It certainly is. It feels like this whole episode has been fun stuff. It, It has been a very fun episode. There was this line that Stephen King put in that I think he did just to show off his grammar skills. <laughs> the line is, it lay as it had lain. And Ooh. as somebody who, despite being an English major and prides himself on grammar, lay, laid, lane, I, I, I always have to look it up. And I try to avoid using those words as whenever I can, because I can never get right when it's laid down, when it's lane, when it's lay. I'm sure there's a a cool hint to remember it, but I can never do so. That is, that is something to remark upon. It lay as it had lain. Sometimes these things, the the more correct they are, the worse they sound. Yeah, and I do think it's just showing off. Hmm. Like there's no reason to have a sentence "it lay as it had lain" other than to say, "Hey, I know how to conjugate verbs." And I know, like, if you're doing like a discrete count and you take like two or more away, it's like. I have two fewer things, Mm. right? I know that's correct, and it sounds correct. But if you take one away, when I say I have one fewer items, it sounds kind of wrong to me because it's just one, one less item. That sounds correct, but I think it's technically wrong. Anyway, this isn't the grammar podcast. This is... Or is it? We fooled you 135 episodes in and... We drop the grammar on you. Next week, we'll be covering Strunk and White's The Elements of Style. (laughs) And then after that, eats, shoots, and leaves. All right. Do you have any fun stuff, Jay? I have a couple. So the first one I wanted to call out is a line. Inside its shell, the three of them went about their early evening routine like microbes trapped inside the intestine of a monster. It made me wonder, like, if the Torrance family is trio of microbes are they like beneficial bacteria in that monster do they help the host animal or are they in an infection causing it to become ill Mm. or are they food that will be digested because like when an animal eats something and then digests it it that that food will invariably have bacteria on it right yep or other microbes and they just get digested as just more of the food it's not so it just made me think about like maybe i'm taking the metaphor too far here there are a lot of ways that they these microbes could be part of the biome that is the intestines of this monster that is the hotel right and and of course this line establishes the hotel as a monster that's right i like the way it works too because a lot of this section has been danny roaming the halls and so you could almost see like they're the circular intestines that he is traveling amongst. Yeah, yeah. It was also one of those lines that 
I'm reading this on my Kindle that had been underlined by hundreds of people throughout the uh, the years of reading. The I Shining. think it was nearly 2000. Yep. Highlights. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. So it, it it is an interesting line. And yeah, just all that the intestines, the monster, the microbes, um, a lot to di- digest there. If you if you will, if you will. Speaking of digestion, one of the things I've talked about before, Jay, is how much I would like to compile a Stephen King cookbook. Oh, yeah. We've got another great one here, and that's Danny's favorite lunch, which is a cheese and bologna sandwich plus Campbell's bean soup. That's a simple one. I think it's sort of funny, too, that we spent, I think it was the first, or no, it was the second episode of this book where Halloran was giving the tour of the kitchen and talking about all Mm -hmm. the food they had, right? Like legs of lamb and bunches of ham and all these pork bellies. And meanwhile, Danny's having a cheese and bologna sandwich and a can of soup. Well, that's easy to make and it's easy to buy. They're still able to go shopping at the nearest grocery store. So yeah. Of course. Yeah. When when they run out of the bologna and the fresh uh, Wonder Bread, it's going to be it's going to be time to crack into that that leg of lamb. And who knows what's happening? The good news is Wonder Bread and Oscar Mayer bologna is uh Pretty well preserved. It'll last throughout the winter. <laughs> it's shelf stable for years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I really like your idea of the Stephen King cookbook. So another thing I wanted to call out in fun stuff is that uh, it's about the Jack using the payphone. But it's been a long time since I've had to use a payphone. I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast, it's been a long time. Perhaps never. Maybe you've <laughs> never even seen a payphone. Be that as it may. I've never made such an expensive call in a payphone. Jack places this long distance call. He needs to put all this money in. He needs to break, break you know, bills for, for coins and stuff like that. And then when he finishes the call, he finds out that he's gone overtime. The operator says, you've gone overtime, sir. $3.50. And then he just puts the phone down, goes <laughs> to the cash register, at the drugstore breaks more uh bills for for coins and then comes back and puts the money in is it the honor system (laughs) what stops him from going yeah try to find me lady and hanging up the phone yeah i i don't know how this is this how it worked Is, is it i don't remember working that way i remember the operator coming on in the middle of the call and saying, if you wanted to continue, put in a dime now or put in a quarter now. And if not, mm-hmm. they disconnected the call. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. There's no honor system there. It's just you you get what you pay for. Yep. And in fact, I remember we would try to game the system. Like if you had to make a collect call to somebody, especially when it became automated and you didn't have to talk mm-hmm. to an operator anymore, and they'd say, say your name at the tone. And usually if you said your name, it would say like, Sean, and then they would the other person on the other line would say, "Would you accept a collect call from Sean?" Mm-hmm. And then eventually, like when I need like my mom to pick me up or something, I would say when they'd say, "Say your name at the tone," I'd say, "Come pick me up at the school right now." <laughs> <laughs> Will you take a collect call from pick me up at the school right now? And then you know, then you'd have to put in the quarter, pay for the collect call charges, but. Yeah, and I mean, maybe King put this whole thing in just to make sure, like, hey, Jack's not a bad guy. I'm still setting him up as a good, honorable man. He puts three dollars and fifty cents in the in the payphone, even when he doesn't have to. Yeah, without even thinking twice about it. 
even though he just made that phone call to tell Ullman that he's a jerk. Yeah, go fuck off, Ullman. Oh, you need three fifty for me, operator. Let me go put it in right now. Yeah, sure. I right just gotta there. go. I just gotta go break some ones. <laughs> I like this line after the snow has come. I think it's from the chapter snow. <laughs> yeah, it probably is in the chapter title snow. And it's not just a light snow, right? Like the first floor windows were covered and the view from the dining room, which Jack had so admired on closing day, was now no more exciting than a view of a blank movie screen. And I just love this idea of like this huge hotel with all these big, broad open windows and all you see is white, like a blank movie screen, not even not even playing anything. And it really adds to that claustrophobia in a nice way. Yeah, if you're inside, but you can see outside, it changes your outlook. But if it's just, you're just in a room with no windows, which is the situation that they're effectively in at this point, that could really wear on you. It'd be very disconcerting. It'd be like living underground or something, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they could always go up to the second floor, but then you'd have to go into one of the rooms. It's not like, it's not like there's a ballroom or something on the second floor where, okay, now we can look out and see the vista. You'd have to actually go into one of the rooms and... I mean, out of all those rooms, which one were you going to go into? Probably 217, right? And then you don't want to be there. There's the naked ghost. It has the comforting rose-colored carpet. And the naked lady in the tub. Her belly floats like a fleshy island. I had one final thing to mention for fun stuff. And this was something that caught my ear, or caught the attention of my ear, which is the, the line or the phrase, I am heartily sorry. Hmm. And the reason why it sounded so familiar was because we've heard it before. And it's not such an uncommon phrase that I don't need to attribute it to King. But in both Blind Willie and Jerusalem's Lot, I am heartily sorry is written multiple times. In fact, it is the, the thing that Blind Willie writes over and over and over again in his journal, journal after journal after journal, because of the terrible things that he thinks or, or, or the terrible things that he has done mm. and wants to atone for. So when uh, Jack says it to Al, he says, I'm sorry, Al. Grace, your mercy, for your mercy, one more chance. I am heartily sorry. I just thought of those other places in King's work where that's been a pretty important phrase. Yeah, that's a good one. I think both Blind Willie and Jack Torrance should... um pick up a book by a guy named Stephen King who said, don't use adverbs and just say, I'm sorry. The heartily is unnecessary. Is it still an adverb there if it's used as emphasis? Uh, yeah, especially then, right? It's emphasizing the verb. Grammar podcast. Grammar podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay, I think it's time to see, move out of the world of The Shining and move into what else is going on in other worlds than these. <laughs> I have been watching the show Julia on HBO. For those not familiar, it is a series about Julia Child, and it is an absolutely wonderful TV show. Every single actor in it is just tip-top. The writing is, is just spectacular. It's not really, if you're like a food TV, a food, you know, food network fan, or even if you're a fan of Julia Child for her cooking, 
this gives you a slightly different angle on her life. So don't think it's just going to be, you know, a recreation of Julia Child episodes where she spends the, the whole time showing how to cook. It's about a person finding a place for herself in the world at a certain time in her life. And it involves the story of her husband and one of her closest friends, and then how she kind of almost accidentally breaks into this TV business. It's just an amazing show. It's wonderful. And if you have any affection for Julia Child at all, and I can't imagine anybody who doesn't, <laughs> give the show a shot. It's, it's definitely worth your time. And as a little bonus, it's kind of a mini Frasier reunion because both B.B. Newirth and David Hyde Pierce are in it. Ah, nice. I would like to recommend the television show Severance, which is on Apple TV. It's a nine-episode series about a number of corporate workers who have made the decision to have their brains severed so that their work self and their non-work self are effectively separated. And it is this dark, what starts off as sort of comedic show that quickly becomes a mystery and gets really sort of deep about what it means to be a person and and the corporate world and what lengths people will go to and lots of great people in it patricia arquette is fantastic adam scott uh you get some john Turturro and christopher walken in it which is uh which is nice as well walken yeah so that's severance on apple tv the first season is completed now nine episodes I have heard a lot of really good things about that. And maybe someday if I get Apple TV, I will check it out. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Shining, Part 4, Snowbound. Possibilities are endless with a title like that. Indeed. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. See, because I think they might be snowbound. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not like set in the desert. No. I wonder if they can get out of the hotel and if they can make it to the next city. Probably not. Are are you sure we're doing part four? We're not doing like the other half of part three or this was the other. This half was the other three. half of part three. You know how I know? <laughs> that should have been the title. The, the other, other half, half of part, part three. three. <laughs> uh